Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Ooh. Society builders with your host, Dwayne Veron. Welcome to Society Builders, and thanks for joining the conversation for social transformation. Now, today's episode is an exceptional episode. I say exceptional here, not because of its outstanding quality, but because it's an exception to our normal pattern of episodes, really. Because we're currently in the middle of our sequence of episodes exploring the science of depolarization, of bringing antagonistic groups closer together. But we're interrupting that sequence because the Baha'i world just received a message from the Universal House of Justice. It's message of November 28th, 2023. And this message is so weighty and so important that I felt it required me to drop everything and focus on exploring its contents immediately. It's a seminal message that Baha'is throughout the world will be studying intensely over the coming weeks. So today, we interrupt our previously scheduled sequence on the science of depolarization to explore the recent message of the Universal House of Justice, exploring the treasures of wisdom that can be discerned from our experiences as a community over the past hundred years and more systematically working to apply our principles. So this episode comes to you hot off the press. So fasten your seatbelts and let's dive right in. Now, we've talked about the significance of this kind of guidance from the Universal House of Justice in previous episodes. Messages like this help us understand our past, and that's not just about the events that transpire, but about interpreting their significance and their impact. They help us understand the future, giving us this incredibly rare glimpse in terms of what's in store for us, what lays for us right around the corner but they also help us understand the present, both in terms of our communities, but also in better understanding the current state of the world. It provides a unique lens to cut through the confusion that is so pervasive all around us and to see global events with a new level of clarity. So messages like this are such a precious gift. We're incredibly fortunate to have access to such wisdom. Literally, every word gives us new insight. So naturally, it's incredibly exciting to be the recipients of this guidance. Now, a couple of quick disclaimers. As I've done before, I want to remind you that this podcast is not a reflection of the views of any Baha'i agency. I share my insights with you purely as a personal initiative. And my views have absolutely no authority whatsoever. In fact, my understanding is clearly imperfect. 
I share my views with you in this series to help stimulate your own thinking. You are perfectly free to accept or reject anything I say. My views are no more or less important than yours. So weigh it all for yourself. Just think of me as another person sitting around in your study group, sharing my thoughts with you, and weigh those thoughts for yourself as you would the contributions of anywhere else in your consultation or in your study group. And once again, I want to remind you that my purpose in sharing my thoughts here with you is not to provide a substitute for your own study of this message. It's designed to supplement your study and hopefully even encourage it. Okay, with those disclaimers, now let's explore. Now, the focus of this message is primarily on what we've achieved as a global community over the past hundred years across the three divine charters in focusing our service and activities. The tablets of the divine plan, which have guided our teaching initiatives. The will and testament of Abdu'l-Bahá, which has shaped the evolution of our Baha'i institutions. And the tablet of Carmel, which has been the guiding light in the building of the Baha'i World Center. The message centers on guidance provided on behalf of Shoghi Effendi that explain that attempts to understand the implications of the will of Abdu'l-Bahá would require a century of actual working before the treasures of wisdom hidden within it could be revealed. And drumroll please, now that we've had that century of it actually working, the time has come for these treasures to now be revealed. And that's what this message provides. Wow, right? This message is that unearthing of these precious treasures. How incredibly exciting is that? Now, by my count, the message is comprised of 27 pages. That's a little over 16,500 words across 89 paragraphs, ignoring titles, of course, that are structured across seven key sections. So this message is on the meteor end of the spectrum in terms of such messages, and it's packed with insights. And the primary narrative of the message is devoted to sharing the story of the history of the past hundred years, gleaning the treasures, the lessons learned along the way. In a lot of ways, this reminds me of the Guardian's contributions in writing God Passes By which is a history of the first hundred years of our faith from 1844 to 1944. Now, there were substantive history books on our faith already written at the time, of course, but Shoghi Effendi's work is entirely unique, not because it tells us the story of the events that transpired, but because it helps us interpret them, their significance, and the unfoldment of a larger narrative of the organic evolution of our faith. And this is precisely what the Universal House of Justice does here. They lay out a history of the first hundred years of our formative age, from 1921 with the passing of Abdu'l-Bahá to 2021, 
of our efforts to apply our teachings as communities in more systematic ways around those three charters which I referenced earlier. Now, you're going to be incredibly inspired when you read all this, if you haven't already. You're going to learn so much, and it helps situate events in your own life with new perspective. It helps you position activities you already participated in, seeing them in new light, understanding the larger narrative of what they were really all about. And I'm sure that throughout our communities, there will be many systematic initiatives designed to help us better study the message because it really is just so seminal. So I hope you will appreciate that an attempt to summarize all of this is well beyond the scope of what we can achieve in today's episode. So that's not what we're going to do. That's not what we're going to focus on in this particular episode. Today's episode is not an attempt to summarize the entire message. Instead, today we're going to focus on the parts of the message which specifically focus on society building. In other words, we're exploring only one aspect of this very weighty message. And in all honesty, I feel inadequate even in attempting that. So please accept my deepest apologies here for not being able to tackle the entire message and for limiting today's episode in this way. Once again, I encourage you to study the message yourself and collectively with others. But hopefully we can explore at least part of that message together in this podcast. And with these disclaimers shared, let's now dive in to explore these parts of the message. And specifically, we're going to explore four themes related to society building here. The organic nature of our evolution as a community, the character of our interaction with wider society, new insights describing the process of society building, and finally, an exploration of the interaction between the forces of integration and disintegration. So today, we'll explore each of these four themes. These first hundred years of the formative age of our faith, the period from 1921 to 2021, will probably be viewed by future historians as the community building stage in our evolution as a community. As the message clarifies, before we could meaningfully contribute to larger society with scale, we had to build our capacity to function as communities capable of charting our own destinies. Now, prior to this in the heroic age, the believers had direct access to guidance from our central figures, first from the Bab, then Baha'u'llah, and then Abdu'l-Baha. So if you've been following this podcast series, you'll remember from episodes 6 through 13, for example, how we explored all of these exciting ways in which the Baha'is of Abdu'l-Baha's generation contributed to society building. But they pursued these under Abdu'l-Baha's direct guidance. Those schools for girls and boys in Iran, the race amity initiatives of the United States, the Baha'i villages cultivating crops in the Holy Land, the erection of the first Mashkal Eskar in Eshkabad, all of these benefited directly from this unerring, patient, and continuous guidance. But once we no longer had direct access to this precious gift to humanity, a new process was set in motion, 
around those three divine charters we talked about, setting in motion the formative age of our faith and developing our capacity as protagonists in our own development to function as communities, making our own decisions and navigating our own paths through systematic action guided by experience and the higher level of guidance first received by Shoghi Effendi and then of the Universal House of Justice. This is this community building stage I was referring to. And this system that has been organically evolving is entirely unique. We have no clergy or leaders directing believers and telling them what to do. We had to develop new patterns of community life centered on collective action through consultation, something truly without parallel anywhere in the world. And there were countless challenges in cultivating this new culture. So while we always had the ability to apply our teachings in the path of our own spiritual progress, learning to do this together collectively took some time. And as the message clarifies, we had to first learn to apply these principles in our own communities before we could effectively apply them to the challenges of wider society. Now, don't get me wrong, plenty of individual Baha'is contributed to society in remarkable ways, and many Baha'i communities and groups of Baha'is contributed, often experimenting with new approaches. And there were new institutions which evolved, institutions at all levels, global, national, local, even Baha'i-inspired organizations, a constellation of new institutions to respond to both the opportunities and demands of engaging with wider society. But the point here is that our systematic attention collectively as communities had as their priority this community-building focus because it was the prerequisite, laying the foundation we would need to collectively and systematically be able to contribute to society-building. So the message carefully lays out the story of the organic evolution of our communities towards the stage where we were finally able to collectively and systematically tackle the society building challenge. In fact, one of my favorite parts of the message articulates this in such an inspiring way. Rather than attempt to summarize this section, let me just read it to you. They say, Shoghi Effendi explained to the Baha'is of America that given the restricted size of their community and the limited influence it wielded, they must focus at that time on its own growth and development as it learned to apply the teachings. He promised, however, that the time would come when they would be called upon to engage their fellow citizens in a process of working for the healing and betterment of their nation. That time has now come, and it has come not only for the Baha'is of America, but for the Baha'is of the world, as the society-building power inherent in the faith is released in ever greater measures. Wow, right? The time is now. 
So we engaged ever so patiently in community building over the past hundred years, developing this capacity for this promised age in which we could then apply ourselves collectively to society building. And that time has now arrived. I mean, doesn't that just take your breath away? And the message really helps us understand this organic evolution. It evolves both through experience and through this higher level of divine guidance. And as the message explains, with every step forward in its organic unfoldment, the Baha'i world develops new powers and new capacities that enable it to take on greater challenges as it strives to achieve Baha'u'llah's purpose for humanity. So this, I think, is one of the main takeaways from the message related to society building, that we understand its place in the organic evolution of our community, how our path moving forward is built on the foundations of our past. Of course, that our new focus builds on the previous plans is something that the Universal House of Justice has been telling us for some years now. But this message goes into much more depth, explaining and illustrating this and inspiring us. It helps us situate the current opportunities, our new focus on society building within this organic evolution of our collective capacity. The second theme I'd like to explore from the message is what new insights it shares in terms of describing our interaction with wider society. Now, there's no question that this arena is one where we're learning and adjusting our views rapidly. Our community cultures are changing and we're learning to reconceptualize how we interact with the world around us. Previously, I think, we thought of ourselves as being very separate from the world. It's like we had a fortress, exclusive from the world around us, but we were very open to inviting people to join us inside this fortress. But there was a clear and defined wall that separated us. We moved in very distinct worlds. We enjoyed fellowship with our Baha'i brothers and sisters, and we created spaces like firesides where we welcomed wider society, but on our turf and on our terms. Now, this is an exaggeration for sure. It wasn't this black and white. There was plenty of gray there. But my description here describes a certain kind of culture where there was a very distinct separation between us and the world around us. Now we know that this perspective is entirely flawed and not consistent with our teachings. We're evolving in better understanding a new reality, but it's one which we're still only getting a glimpse of. And this message helps further clarify this. It's an incredibly new reality that is central to our new approach to society building. So instead of this separation, we're learning to see the world around us as collaborators, partners in building a new world. In fact, the vast majority of people engaged in this enterprise will be from this wider society. So don't think of the thousands in our regional Baha'i communities 
think of the millions in the world around us. That's the force to be mobilized in the path of society building. So here, the Universal House of Justice reminds us that Baha'u'llah calls on us to act as the leaven, a permeating and vivifying influence that could inspire others to arise and overcome entrenched patterns of divisiveness, conflict, and contest for power so that the highest aspirations of humanity could ultimately be achieved. We act as catalysts. We help awaken this capacity in society. It's not something we do for the world. It's something we do together with the world. And this recognizes that everyone has a role. So our challenge is in finding sympathetic individuals and organizations who pursue common objectives so we can collaborate with them. And in this collaboration, we all learn and discover. They learn from our experiences and our teachings, and we learn from their experiences. This is a true partnership in a common quest. This builds on the recent Resvan message of the Universal House of Justice, where they use the example of the recent conferences held all around the world to describe a new level of kinship, how we have become much more open to wider society, consulting about our plans in the company of those from wider society. And this is very different from the past, where we first developed our plans behind closed doors and then interacted with society. So this reflects this new paradigm of kinship, of collaboration, and partnership. As the Universal House of Justice writes in the message, every people and every nation has a part to play in the next stage in the fundamental reconstruction of human society. All have unique insights and experiences to offer for the building of a unified world. And it is the responsibility of the friends as the bearers of Baha'u'llah's restorative message to assist populations to release their latent potentialities to achieve their highest aspirations. In this effort, the friends share this precious message with others, strive to demonstrate the efficacy of the divine remedy in the lives of individuals and communities, and work together with all those who appreciate and share the same values and aspirations. As they do so, Baha'u'llah's vision of a unified world will offer a hopeful and clear direction to peoples whose perception has been distorted by the confusion prevailing in the world and a constructive path for cooperation in the search for solutions to longstanding social maladies. As the spirit of the faith increasingly permeates the hearts to enkindle love and reinforce the shared identity of humanity as one people, it instills a sense of loyal and conscientious civic responsibility. And in place of the pursuit of worldly power, redirects energies towards disinterested service in the pursuit of the common good. Populations increasingly adopt the method of consultation, action, and reflection to displace endless contest and conflict. 
individuals, communities, and institutions across diverse societies increasingly harmonize their efforts in common purpose to overcome sectarian rivalries and spiritual and moral qualities foundational to humanity's progress and well-being take root in human character and social practice. Wow. We have so much to offer, but to properly actualize this all, it's something we have to do in partnership with the world around us. We don't own our principles. They are there for the common good. And as the world discovers the utility of these principles in helping with their own ambitions, learning to adopt, for example, our method of consultation in their decision-making, as they increasingly interact with the faith, they will release their own latent potentialities, helping advance the path to a more unified world. The message also gives us all kinds of exciting new contributions to our larger understanding of the process of society building. Again, our understanding of what society building looks and feels like is evolving. We don't yet have a common unity of thought on what it all means. We don't yet understand what a distinctive Baha'i approach looks like. That's something that will evolve rapidly over the coming decades. Now, I've talked about this in previous episodes, how there are key constructs like progressive revelation, which have achieved this kind of unity of thought. Anywhere you go in the Baha'i world, from the jungles of the Congo to the highlands of Papua New Guinea, every Baha'i will share a description of what progressive revelation means that is incredibly similar. And over the course of the past 25 years, there are new constructs in the community building arena which share this kind of unity of thought. So again, anywhere you go, for example, the construct of accompaniment, just to use one example, will have a common meaning. But we haven't yet achieved this around the various constructs associated with society building. I suspect that our descriptions here would vary wildly. And many of our concepts are still probably shaped by secular concepts, us framing our Baha'i work within the frameworks and approaches we already understand, those adopted from wider society, instead of discovering this distinctive Baha'i approach. And this quest for this discovery is why it's so important to look to messages like this for clues, clues on what this approach to society building will look and feel like. So there are a number of treasures here in this message. And these are treasures we want to learn from. First, the Universal House of Justice again reminds us that development is not a process that is carried out by one people on behalf of another. It is people themselves, wherever they reside, acting as protagonists in their own development. So development is something we do with people as equal protagonists not something we do for them. Another principle is that in the same way that we see this meta-narrative of the organic evolution of our community over the past hundred years, 
the same kind of organic evolution happens in all of our society building initiatives. Effort starts small and grow as experience accumulates. We learn from our experiences, which shape the evolution of our approaches. And this idea has a number of important dimensions to it. First, that initiatives grow organically, but also that they are shaped by our experiences. It's not something we think up and simply implement around a grand design. It also highlights how critical it is to try to get the process right by not overextending ourselves, by staying true to our principles rather than compromising for expediency. Because how we do things is just as important as what we do. The means by which the end is attained is just as important as the end itself. Much will depend upon the spirit and manner in which our tasks are conducted. And related to this is that process of reflection, of accessing and contributing to insights, to knowledge, to experience. It's something that should be available to all, a democratization of access to knowledge. I want to explore this theme a little further because while I think a lot of heads will nod in agreement with this idea, I think this is something a lot of communities really need to work on. In my own experience, institutions often hold such knowledge very close to their chests and are reluctant and suspicious in sharing it. Some of this, I think, reflects a fear that such knowledge might include negative results, which might discourage others. For my part, and I'm speaking purely personally here, I think this approach is fundamentally wrong. The Universal House of Justice repeatedly calls on us to be scientific in our approach. And science is all about falsifiability, about the ability to learn from both success and failure. And you can't learn from failure if you suppress all knowledge of it. And here, I'm just talking about access to knowledge within our community. It doesn't even grapple with the challenge of sharing such experience with wider society, which is also part of the process. Now, again, this is just my personal view, but I think we're going to have to learn to trust the process more, to learn from what works, but also from what doesn't and become more secure in providing open access to what we learn from our experiences, whether good or bad. And while we're talking about the method of science, another key scientific principle articulated in the message is that of replicability. Good science is replicable. You can retest to see whether you get similar results. And in the same way, as programs and approaches prove successful in one region, we should be able to replicate that success in other regions. And that too requires an openness to sharing and to accompaniment. And the Universal House of Justice highlights some of the areas where our contributions to societal discourse have been particularly effective. The advancement of women, the role of religion in society, the spiritual and moral empowerment of youth, the promotion of justice, and the strengthening of social cohesion. And here, there's one reference that really leapt out of the pages for me. You know, a key victory of the plans of the past 25 years was the leadership which evolved in our youth. Youth truly moved to the vanguard, leading our path in most initiatives. I mean, it was truly a dramatic pattern. And here, 
in this message, the Universal House of Justice says this. They say, the movement of youth will be complemented worldwide by the unprecedented advancement of women as full partners in community affairs. <laughs> so take that as a clue. There is a mighty and powerful new pattern we'll see over the course of the next 25 years, similar to what we saw with the rise of our youth over the past 25 years. And this new pattern will see this unprecedented advancement of women. I mean, how incredibly exciting. I don't know about you, but now that I've read this, my eyes are suddenly open to this new reality and I'm eager to see what this all looks like. There's also a reference here. Again, this is something we've seen in recent messages, but there's a clear shout out to the incredible role of local spiritual assemblies and their engagement with wider society and with local leaders. And similarly, there's a shout out again, also emphasized in recent messages, to the intellectual life of the community. And this relates to numerous references. In fact, I counted seven different sections where the Universal House of Justice is elaborating on the coherence construct. So there is again, further clarification that we shouldn't pursue our work in fragmented and disjointed and disconnected ways, but that our approach needs to reflect a coherence that integrates across our work in community building, social action, and participation in the prevalent discourses of society and that it maintains such coherence among the three chief protagonists of the plan, the community, our institutions, and the individual believer. And of course, there are words of caution against getting engulfed by divisive and political discourse. And instead, we need to seek to foster consensus and unity of thought and to promote collaboration and a common search to humanity's pressing problems. So in all these ways, the message is packed with insights, helping us better understand the process of society building. The final theme I'd like to explore in the message that related to society building is in the message's description of the interplay between the forces of integration and disintegration. On a personal level, these references felt somewhat ominous, like there are some very, very turbulent times in store for us all. In fact, and again, this is just a personal reflection here, but I found the tone of these references to be very similar to the tone of The Guardian's writings in the message of March 28th, 1941, which was published in book form as the promised day has come. Now, March of 1941 was an incredibly turbulent time. It was the peak, really, of Nazi expansion. France had already been conquered. Great Britain was being bombed on a daily basis. Rommel was, despite all odds, conquering Africa, and his conquest of the Holy Land seemed a certainty. So it seemed that Nazi tanks would be rolling to the Holy Land at any minute, and who knew what the implications for all this would be for our world center? I mean, these were truly scary times. I mean, this is the peak moment of despair for the free world. 
And at this juncture, Shoghi Effendi writes, a tempest unprecedented in its violence, unpredictable in its course, catastrophic in its immediate effects, unimaginably glorious in its ultimate consequences, is at present sweeping the face of the earth. Its driving power is remorselessly gaining in range and momentum. Its cleansing force, however much undetected, is increasing with every passing day. Humanity, gripped in the clutches of its devastating power, is smitten by the evidences of its resistless fury. It can neither perceive its origin, nor probe its significance, nor discern its outcome. Bewildered, agonized, and helpless, it watches this great and mighty wind of God invading the remotest and fairest regions of the earth, rocking its foundations, deranging its equilibrium, sundering its nations, disrupting the homes of its people, wasting its cities, driving into exile its kings, pulling down its bulwarks, uprooting its institutions, dimming its lights, and harrowing up the souls of its inhabitants. And further, he writes, Dear friends, the powerful operations of this titanic upheaval are comprehensible to none except such as have recognized the claims of both Baha'u'llah and the Bab. Their followers know full well whence it comes and what it will ultimately lead to. Though ignorant of how far it will reach, they clearly recognize its genesis, are aware of its direction, acknowledge its necessity, observe confidently its mysterious processes, ardently pray for the mitigation of its severity, intelligently labor to assuage its fury, and anticipate with undimmed vision the consummation of the fears and the hopes it must necessarily engender. Now, as a side note, this letter literally marks the turning point of the war. Almost immediately after this letter was written, Rommel's fortunes changed and he had to reverse and retreat. Hitler's subsequent invasion of Russia only months later laid the foundations for his defeat. So this is a turning point, so to speak. But, Imagine yourself living at this time, in March of 1941, in these incredibly turbulent times, and receiving this guidance from the beloved guardian. Now, to me, again, this is just a personal reflection, but this section of the message of the Universal House of Justice has these kinds of tones as they describe this interplay between the forces of integration and disintegration in operation in the world today, calling on our ability to read the reality of society as it responds to and is shaped by these twin processes. They frame this as the Baha'i world needing to navigate the turmoil of a most perilous period in humanity's social evolution, but assuring us that we will follow undeviatingly the course set by providence. Here's how they frame this dual process. They say this, they say, 
a plethora of destructive forces and events, including environmental degradation, climate change, pandemics, the decline of religion and morals, the loss of meaning and identity, the erosion of the concepts of truth and reason, unbridled technology, the exasperation of prejudices and ideological contention, pervasive corruption, political and economic upheaval, war and genocide have left their traces in blood and anguish on the pages of history and the lives of billions. At the same time, hopeful, constructive trends can be discerned, which are contributing to that universal fermentation which Shoghi Effendi said is purging and reshaping humanity in anticipation of the day when the wholeness of the human race will have been recognized and its unity established. The diffusion of the spirit of world solidarity, a greater consciousness of global interdependence, the embrace of collaborative action among individuals and institutions, and a heightened longing for justice and peace are profoundly transforming human relationships. And thus, the movement of the world towards Baha'u'llah's vision advances in countless halting steps, in occasional dramatic leaps and with intermittent stretches where progress stalls or is even reversed as humanity forges the relationships that constitute the foundations of a united and peaceful world. Now, the integration part of that dual process is incredibly inspiring, right? I mean, we love reading about all these trends that are coming together. But if you're like me, you're a little bit daunted and scared by the disintegration part. As the message says, none can anticipate precisely what course the forces of disintegration are destined to take. What violent convulsions will yet assail humanity in this travailing age, or what obstacles and opportunities may arise. I mean, how scary is that, right? And the Universal House of Justice makes it clear here that we are not immune to the pain and suffering the world will experience. The turmoil in the world around us will impact us all the same. We may understand it, but we'll still be experiencing it. They use the example here of the inability of Baha'i communities to pursue the plans during the Second World War, for example. Upheavals will paralyze the ability of whole communities and whole populations to fully participate. It'll impact our financial resources. I mean, we'll be impacted in every way. We'll feel the pain. And what's interesting to me is that the language of the Universal House of Justice here is not one of bunkering up. We're not preppers. We're not trying to disengage with society as some might do. We don't fear it. We're not trying to avoid it. So the purpose doesn't feel like a warning so that we can plan out how to best escape it. Instead, it focuses on this interplay between the force of integration and disintegration. It's a summons for us to pull up our socks, develop the skills we need, so we are best prepared to help in service to our fellow brothers and sisters in the world who will also be navigating through this turmoil. It's a window of opportunity for us to prepare ourselves 
for the tools we'll need to help our fellow compatriots in this hour of crisis that looms in our impending future. How amazing is that? There is a recognition that this process of disintegration will lead to greater polarization, to the recrudescence of conflict among competing factions in a cycle that will play over and over again. And that the need for our service in helping remedy this will be greater than ever. And here, there's a symbiotic relationship between these forces of integration and disintegration. As the forces of disintegration accelerate, so too simultaneously, the forces of integration accelerate, knitting together ever more closely the efforts of those who are learning to translate Baha'u'llah's teachings into reality with those in the wider society who seek justice and peace. And here, the Universal House of Justice gives us some specific tools to help us navigate through these challenging times. First, they give us the example of the Iranian Baha'i community, who for 40 years now have shouldered the most intense suffering and pain as an intensely persecuted community, but who have responded to this crisis with unbowed courage and constructive resilience. So here we can look to our future hardship inspired by this example, reflecting endurance in the face of injustices, indignities, and privation. There are expressions of unswerving fortitude, of consecrated devotion and mutual support. These are essential lessons for how the Baha'i world must respond to the acceleration of the destructive forces that can be expected in the years ahead. And the second tool they give us here is a reminder to hold on tight to the fundamental truths we know. For example, the fundamental truth that we are all part of a single unified organism. Well, this is such a big idea. It's so crucial to how we interact within all of our society building initiatives. There is no us versus them. We are all part of one human family. And that idea is not a platitude. It's a whole system of meaning a whole way of understanding the world. It's a paradigm that is truly different from how others understand the world. So our path to helping others is centered on us upholding such truths, because in those truths lays the remedies to every ailment. And again, because this idea is so incredibly transformational and seminal, I'd like to quote directly from the message. They say, At its heart, the challenge presented by the interplay of the processes of integration and disintegration is the challenge of holding fast to Baha'u'llah's description of reality and to his teachings, while resisting the pull of controversial and polarizing debates and beguiling prescriptions that reflect futile attempts to define human identity and social reality through limited human conceptions, materialist philosophies, and competing passions. 
The all-knowing physician hath his finger on the pulse of mankind. He perceiveth the disease and prescribeth in his unerring wisdom the remedy, Baha'u'llah states. We can well perceive how the whole human race is encompassed with great, with incalculable afflictions. Yet he adds, they that are intoxicated by self-conceit have interposed themselves between it and the infallible physician. Witness how they have entangled all men, themselves included, in the mesh of their devices. If Baha'is become entangled in the delusory notions of contending peoples, if they emulate the values, attitudes, and practices that define a self-absorbed and self-serving age, the release of those forces necessary to redeem humanity from its plight will be delayed and obstructed. Rather, as the Guardian explains, the champion builders of Baha'u'llah's rising world order must scale nobler heights of heroism as humanity plunges into greater depths of despair, degradation, dissension, and distress. Let them forge ahead into the future serenely confident that the hour of their mightiest exertions and the supreme opportunity for their greatest exploits must coincide with the apocalyptic upheaval marking the lowest ebb in mankind's fast-declining fortunes. Wow. So we need to uphold the truths we know. For example, that all humanity is one and view everything through this lens of these truths and not reduce our understanding to the materialist views of our day, which reduce everything to conflict and contests of power. And as we get better at sharing such truths, at applying them and acting in coherence with them, as we grow in this capacity, we'll increasingly be able to offer society a haven of refuge to its members in this hour of their realized doom. Wow. So fasten your seatbelts. We might have some rough weather ahead, but our best response is to prepare ourselves so we can best be of service to humanity in its hour of need. Well, that's all the time we have for exploring these themes today. Once again, remember that this is not a summary of the entire message. There are numerous other themes throughout the message. Our approaches to teaching, to Baha'i administration, to the evolution of the Baha'i World Center, on the covenant, the process of translating Baha'u'llah's writings into the arena of action, and so much more. It's a message packed with these treasures of insight. Today, I've only focused on the parts of the message which specifically addressed our society-building focus. So you'll really want to study the message in its entirety for yourselves. And as I mentioned at the outset, today's episode was a break in the sequence of episodes exploring the science of depolarization, a theme we continue in our next episode, where I'll interview Andrea Bartoli, who is both a scholar and who serves as the president of the San Egidio Foundation 
for Peace and Dialogue, which is a global Catholic association championing world peace. Andrea will share amazing stories from his own work in helping bring an end to the civil war in Mozambique. I mean, these are incredible insights to learn from. His stories will truly inspire you. So thanks again for joining the conversation for Social Transformation. I look forward to seeing you again next time on Society Builders. Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. There's a crisis facing humanity. People suffer from a lack of unity. It's time for a better path to a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. For social transformation, society builders. So engage with your local communities and explore the exciting possibilities. We can elevate the atmosphere in which we move. The paradigm is shifting, it's so very uplifting. It's a new beat, a new song, a brand new groove. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. The Baha'i faith has a lot to say Helping people discover a better way With discourse and social action Framed by unity Now the time has come to lift the game And apply the teachings of the greatest name And rise to meet the glory of our destiny Join a conversation For social transformation Society builder. Social transformation, society builders.